Hi, and welcome to Listen Up A-Holes, the only Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast that set up some trippy psychodrama bullshit in Nightmare Barbie's dream house. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media. And I'm Joshua Unruh, superhero scholar from Pulp Diction Productions. Together we're working our way through the good, the bad, and the morally questionable of the MCU. So listen up, A-Holes. We're going to talk about Jessica Jones, Season 1, Episodes 7 and 8. All right, Lonnie, I may have backed the wrong horse on topics this episode. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, in all honesty, I kind of wish that I could have saved some more of Jessica's business until here towards the end of the first season, <laughs> you know? Yes. I mean, I know I really couldn't because the a-holes would have rioted if I'd made them wait one more minute for talking about Kilgrave. Right. <laughs> and I regret nothing about my love letter to Patsy, but it feels weird to do more than one episode of Jessica's own show without mentioning something about Jessica. Sure. Yeah, no, I can understand that. It's weird. That's weird. At any rate, things are going to get a little thin on the ground here towards the end of season one. And if I'm honest, I have no idea what we're going to talk about in season two. So things to look forward to. <laughs> right. But what I did decide to cover this episode were the loves of Jessica Jones. I like it. Yeah. I liked it, too, until I realized what two episodes I was going to tack it on. <laughs> Maybe not the best plan that I've ever made. Oh, well. Maybe not. <laughs> so anyway, these are the many loves of Jessica Jones. And honestly, uh, they're mostly failed relationships. But if we're brutally honest, that makes sense. Because don't all of us have more <laughs> failed relationships than we have successful ones, probably? You know, yeah, I think most of us probably you know, the, the best <laughs> most people can expect is a tie at zero to zero. And I'm not sure that's right. better. So <laughs> at any rate, here we are. Let's talk about all the men Jessica's loved before. <laughs> the first recorded crush of Jessica Jones, according to her internal fictional chronology, not according to publishing date, mm -hmm. is, believe it or not, Peter Parker. I love it. Now, I'd like to say Peter Parker, a.k.a. the Amazing Spider-Man, but she actually had a crush on him before he was Spider-Man. Oh, that's sweet. Did they go to like the same high school or something? Yes, they did. In oh, Alias cool. number 22, we discovered that they both attended Midtown High together. Wow. So we have retconned Jessica into a mid-60s comic book, which mm -hmm. sure, why not? <laughs> Jessica had an unrequited crush on permanent human wallflower, Peter Parker. <laughs> and the day that she decided to tell him, she followed him to a science exhibit in order oh, to confess no. her love. <laughs> oh, but no. she never had a chance because that was the day he was bitten by a radioactive spider. Wow. And left the science demonstration early. Her luck is just terrible. It's pretty garbage. Yeah. I mean, and to be honest, that's the best of her bad luck. Like, that's as good as it gets. Not just in men, but in general. You in know. general, right. So she never gets to tell him because he stumbles out of the science demonstration feeling sick. She follows him out to the street but loses sight of him. For those of you who have read that issue of the comic book, that's because he nearly got hit by a car and jumped a city block away and climbed up a building. Uh 
<laughs> discovering he had spider power. So it's not her fault. It's not like she's a bad detective. There was right. probably no way she was going to be able to follow that guy. <laughs> For our next recorded romantic interest, we have to jump well into the future. Mm-hmm. As mentioned previously, the Avengers beat the living snot out of Jessica after she attacked the Scarlet Witch while under the control of the Purple Man. Uh-huh. You may recall that Jean Grey helped put her mind back together and woke her up. And after mm-hmm. several months of recovering from that ordeal, she began dating Clay Quartermain, agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Oh, man. Now, I'm reasonably sure that I've mentioned Quartermain before. Mm-hmm. Because he has been the S.H.I.E.L.D. leader of a second Hulkbusters unit. Yes, I kind of feel like you did, and I I know Quartermain, and I may have brought that up in that episode. I have no idea. I don't remember what conversations we've had on mic or off mic. Um, <laughs> this might have been an off mic one. That is an ongoing problem, friends. That is an ongoing problem. I was like, oh, we talked about this, didn't we? And yeah, but you know, not a, not recorded it. Um, but there was this this family on General Hospital when I was a kid called the Quartermains, <laughs> and so I always remember like that is just a weird name, and I've never heard associated with anybody except this one family on General Hospital. <laughs> well, I always think of Alan Quartermain. Alan Quartermain. Well, Alan Quartermain was actually one of the characters on General Hospital, Shut but also up. somebody they stole else. That. They stole it. They did. That's from King Solomon's Mines. They did, yes. Yeah, he's like a Mm -hmm. proto, well, I guess I shouldn't say proto Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones borrows from Alan Quartermain also. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of those very problematic great white hunter types, you know. Uh, Yeah. At any rate, (laughs) yeah, they're dating. Jessica Mm -hmm. and Claire dating. And I could not figure out exactly when they stopped dating. But Jessica was actually offered a spot on the Avengers as a S.H.I.E.L.D. liaison, and she declined. Mm -hmm. So that may have had something to do with the ending of their relationship. You know, dating spies is hard. You know, it's, it's tough. That's why you don't date where you work, man. You know? Jessica did sort of also date Luke Cage for a bit. Uh-huh. But we're going to come back to him, okay? Yes. Mm-hmm. Because the first time around, Carol Danvers, side mm-hmm. note, remember how Captain Marvel used to be way less interesting and used to be called Warbird and some other <laughs> stupid shit, as well as being Jessica's best friend, which is kind of cool. Yes. Remember all that time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was then. This is That's the time we're talking about. So Carol okay. Danvers suggested that Jessica stop seeing Luke and instead see Scott Lang, the uh-huh. second Ant-Man. She was actually getting along with Scott Lang, but then the Purple Man showed back up. Oh. And he made Jessica see Scott as dead in her bed, killed by thousands of ants. Ooh. And later, he forced her to imagine one of her worst fears, which turned out to be Scott in a menage a trois with Luke Cage and Carol Danvers. Oh, God. (laughs) And isn't it... Interesting how, like, one man's fear is another man's hope, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> Just, I mean, I feel like there's a fortune cookie life lesson mixed in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. None of that is what broke them up, though. Believe it mm-hmm. or not, the Purple Man is not what broke up Scott and Jessica. Wow. Jessica confessed to Scott that she was three months pregnant and that it wasn't his child. And that oh. that is the moment they parted ways. Yeah. Which returns us to Luke Cage. Mm-hmm. Because it's Luke's baby. Ooh. Luke and Jessica decided to keep the child and also confessed that they cared for one another, but they weren't really sure, like, what their relationship was, you know? Mm-hmm. 
Now, since then, and a whole bunch of other, you know, ups and downs and relationship shenanigans, they have decided to make a life together, which led to Jessica kind of sort of joining the Avengers, as I mentioned, and taking mm -hmm. on the name Power Woman. Yeah. As an homage to Luke Cage, because he used to be called Power Man before Brian Michael Bendis decided superhero codenames were stupid in the early aughts. <laughs> Later, after a lot of Avenger shenanigans and Jessica quitting her job at the Daily Bugle, that's a spoiler for next week's The Many Jobs of Jessica Jones, <laughs> they had their baby and mm -hmm. Jessica agreed to marry Luke, but she kept her name Jones. Yes. Which is great because her other flirtation with taking Luke's name, Power Woman, is fucking terrible. God. Yeah, no, that is pretty bad. <laughs> And Luke and Jessica are still together to this day. Aww. And in case you were wondering, they named their daughter Danielle after Luke's best friend, Danny Rand, the immortal Iron Fist. Wow. And in case you were curious what kind of parents Luke and Jessica were, or will be, or are, it's probably worth mentioning that Danielle grows up to be Captain America in the future, and we know that because comics, everybody. <laughs> I love it. So th that's it. I said the many loves, but there aren't there aren't that many. But there's a lot of tumult in the ones that there are. So well, I like that she ends up with Luke Cage. I mean, I know nothing about Luke Cage except you know what we've got in this show. But I love him, and he is like my favorite thing. So I kind of I kind of do want them together eventually. You know, yeah. there is the, I I like where they've ended up. Um, I may yeah. have mentioned that in the early issues of Alias, I was uh, very uncomfortable with their relationship. Mm -hmm. um, but again, that's because a well-meaning man writes female protagonists and. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Luke Cage actually has a much higher profile in the Marvel Universe at large. And we basically got a show because yeah. Brian Michael Bendis decided he needed to come back. You yeah. Know? Mm -hmm. uh, because for a long time he had lain fallow. He was, and we'll talk more about this in his show, of course, but he was basically shaft with superpowers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is great. But it's not exactly going to carry you into a new millennium, you know. Right. So so I like where they wound up. I was a little more uncomfortable at the beginning. But I really do like that that there's a stable married mm -hmm. superhero couple with yeah. child, yeah. you know, who isn't Reed and Sue Richards because the Fantastic Four is complicated. So it's they're right. more normal, God yeah. help them, than the Fantastic Four. <laughs> yeah. And considering that Marvel has kind of uh, like a, a fear and loathing towards married superheroes, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, rather than just have them get a divorce, they let Peter Parker make a literal deal with Satan to undo his marriage. My God. Yeah. It's very <laughs> nice. It's very nice to have this like healthy, complicated, but still together married couple and child doing superhero shit together. And we know that they're casting their ideals into the future because Danielle grows up and puts on the flag and carries the yeah. shield. Like there's nothing yeah. better than that in the 616. Yeah, so. <laughs> I like that. Well, it's nice that we're, you know, we have this in the comics, this example of like good functional relationships, because I gotta tell you in the television show, I don't know that this Jessica is ever going to be functional. No, way. it's much less so, much less so. There is a lot going on in Jessica's own internal story, you know, yeah. where, where she is trying, she has some sort of different run-ins with Kilgrave in the comic book that sets her up to want to be mm -hmm. a little more, 
I don't know what the right word is. Like, she makes a little more effort towards her own mental and physical health in the comic yeah, books. Yeah, yeah. Which the situations are different enough that it's, they make, it makes more sense, right? It makes, she also has yeah. like some support in Carol right. and Luke. She's not just mm-hmm. on her own, you know? Yeah, yeah. Is she edgy in the comic books the way that she is in the TV show? Yes, I, that's what I meant. Like at the beginning, they are very, very similar, but then okay. her her own internal story kind of diverges pretty hard. Her story has to deal with Kilgrave, but because yeah. of the very nature of episodic comic books and that she started out with a much more sort of case of the month thing going right. on with the mm-hmm. books, mm-hmm. it wasn't as focused on Kilgrave. So definitely they had to deal with that. But also when they dealt with that, it just went very differently. Like mm-hmm. it, it empowered her differently and... And then, you know, she winds up dating Luke and there's a baby and she feels like she's got to get her life together for the baby. And I don't know how women of the world feel about that story. But I mean, I can personally attest to I felt like I needed to get my shit together when I was about to be a dad. So, you know, it rang true to me Mm -hmm. that that Mm -hmm. a little bit more support and a little bit less fraught Kilgrave and the addition of a family would put her in a much healthier position. So, Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, now we get to talk about Unhealthy Jessica in Season 1, Episode 7, a.k.a. Top Shelf Perverts. In a.k.a. Top Shelf Perverts, Jessica gets drunk, thrown out of a bar, and then holds Jerry's ex-wife Wendy over a subway platform and threatens her to get her to sign the divorce papers. Jessica slips, drops Wendy on the tracks, and then saves Wendy, but hesitates a bit before jumping out of the way of the oncoming train. Malcolm finds Jessica almost passed out in the elevator and brings her into her apartment, where they find Reuben with his throat slit by his own hand. Kilgrave was there. Jessica decides the only thing to do is confess to the murder and have herself thrown into Supermax prison, where Kilgrave will have to go through seven layers of security to get to her. It's a plan. It's not a great one, but it's a plan. Speaking of stupid plans, Trish is still sleeping with Simpson. And she trusts him to go spy on Kilgrave to find out where he is. At which point, she somehow thinks she'll be able to deliver Kilgrave to the hermetically sealed room. Simpson, of course, lies to her about not seeing Kilgrave. He watches from the road and does little else while Kilgrave sets up Jessica's childhood home. Jessica spends the day preparing for incarceration and tying up loose ends. She gets Hogarth to represent her, goes to threaten Trisha's mom, and climbs to the top of the Brooklyn Bridge to say goodbye to the city. Meanwhile, Malcolm enlists Trish to help him get rid of Reuben's body so that Jessica won't go to prison. Jessica comes home from her day of goodbyes to find Trish, who pulls a pot and kettle maneuver when she tells Jessica it's a stupid plan. Jessica finds him, jumps into the river, tears off Reuben's head, and puts it in a plastic bag, and then somehow travels all the way through the city, dripping wet with a bloody head in a bag, and no one bothers her about it until she gets to the precinct and dumps it on Detective Clemens' desk. Now, I'm going to do a side note. I've been to New York City. I don't find that implausible. And I love New York City. But I don't find that wildly implausible. I do find it implausible, but you know, whatever. Clemson starts asking questions while she demands to go to Supermax, demonstrating her strength by ripping through her restraints, and then a cop comes in and tells her she's free to go. Jessica walks into the precinct to find all the cops with their guns either on themselves or each other, and there's Kilgrave. He makes what I'm sure he feels is a touching proclamation of love, but is really a creepy manifesto of obsession. 
He declares his love while waiting for an IT guy to erase all evidence that he or Jessica had even been there, and then leaves with Ruben's head, telling Jessica that he wants her to choose him of her own free will. The cops lower their guns and start laughing, and Jessica walks. The next day, while Simpson watches from his car like a douchebag with a bad plan, Jessica shows up at her childhood home, meets Kilgrave in the driveway, and walks into the house with him. AKA Top Shelf Perverts was written by Jenna Reback and Micah Schraft. This episode was directed by Simon Selen Jones. All right, before we get started today, I do want to have a quick content warning. We are going to have some discussion of suicidal thematic elements in this episode. So if that is a problem for you, you can skip ahead to the next episode or maybe skip this episode of Listen Up A-Holes altogether. Um, all right, so Joshua, I got to say, before we even get into the details on this episode, I love this episode. I think this is one of the best written episodes of Jessica Jones that we've had to date, um, not just in the movement of the narrative, but in the moment to moment, you know, dialogue that's being said, these character interactions. It is so incredibly, incredibly good. And I'm curious what you felt about it. I agree. These are great. Both these, I think, are really good. But this is this is one of the like peaks of the series. Yeah. And there's actually been some discussion on the Discord channel about how so many Netflix shows in general, but especially the Marvel shows, kind of have a middle slump. Yeah. Jessica has one, okay, but Mm -hmm. it's not in the middle. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's towards the back third. It is toward the back third, yeah. This is where you would expect it to be, and it's just not here. This is where we're getting some of the best stuff. Oh, my God. This is amazing. I mean, both of these episodes, definitely. This one specifically, though, just delighted me in a million different ways that, of course, we're going to talk about as we get to it. Um, But I want to talk about Jessica first, um, because it's what she's going through. This is actually like a very internal episode for her. Mm -hmm. You know, she's struggling with all this stuff. We come off of, you know, Luke discovering what she did calling her a piece of shit, right? Which Jessica did not need that because that's the internal dialogue that's in her head all day, every day anyway. Right. Uh, But Luke just like shifted that into overdrive. So we open up with her getting like completely plastered at a bar, thrown into a pile of garbage. The homeless man next to her says, you stink. (laughs) And she goes, well, I'm a piece of shit and shit stinks. And then after he tells her she stinks, she gives him her blimpy card <laughs> to away from a free sandwich. And there's something about that moment that is so incredibly humanizing. And and this is the thing with Jessica is that she doesn't seem interested like in being a good person. She seems like she can't help it. Like she's yeah. just yeah. she's just kind. It's just who she is. And I'm not sure if she had the choice that she would choose, I don't think she'd be evil, you know, but that she would choose to be that kind. It almost feels involuntary for her. No, I agree. And we ran into this even earlier, like in her conversations with Luke, where yeah. Luke is very comfortable to kind of maintain his at arm's length community and protect what's his. And he is yeah. at this point considering that good enough. You know, yes. Mm-hmm. And Jessica, who does not like people, does not yeah. want to help people, put herself in a job where she could at least kind of help people. And then we watch her just 
go down the drain of helping people even in this low moment. Yeah, no, it's really funny. And then we follow this up with her threatening Wendy, holding her over (laughs) the train tracks in the subway station, right? Dangling her off the platform, threatening her to get her to sign, you know, these divorce papers. And then accidentally drop because she's so drunk absolutely dropping this woman onto the train tracks um and so jessica goes in tosses wendy like a bag of laundry back up onto the platform right and then stands there and stares at this oncoming train you know and there's there's actually a lot of this in this episode We're, we're calling to this idea of suicide this idea of just ending it you know, yeah. and she is flirting with suicide in that moment. And it's it's really kind of heartbreaking, you know, because she's she's at such a low moment. And and Wendy, you know, for everything that we can tell about Wendy, although we haven't seen her much and she hasn't been terribly well characterized at this point, she seems, you know, very hurt and very angry, but also like essentially a good person. Like, I think she's yeah. like a doctor or a nurse or something. Right. Yeah. And it looked like at a clinic, you know, she's yeah. not like, you know, in yeah. some fancy hospital making bajillions of dollars right exactly you know so i mean here we have jessica kind of absently almost you know without thinking about it knee jerk being kind to this you know this man who called told her that she stinks right you know (laughs) um and then going and taking this good person and threatening her and frightening her and dangling her over subway tracks you know so this internal conflict within Jessica, you can see it playing out in a million different different ways. But when she's staring at that train, like you really see the conflict. You know, she wants to yeah. die, but I think that she or she wants to end it. She wants it over, I think, more necessarily yes. than she wants to actually die. Um but she can't yet, you know, so she's like she's constantly at war in herself. And so we see in just these first few minutes of this episode, that internal war, like, so beautifully expressed in so many different ways. It's really true. Uh, you can actually kind of pretty easily chart her kind of internal ups and downs. Like you were saying at the beginning, everything since Luke called her a piece of shit is her own internal monologue yeah. externalized. Mm-hmm. You yes. Know? And to the point where she drinks. This is the first time we've seen her drunk. Yeah. Like fall down drunk, you know. Right. Because usually she drinks. Right. But it's a functional alcoholism. It's not a drinking to get drunk. It's a drinking to keep your your level, you know, because there's a point where you've been drunk so much that without it, you can't feel normal. Mm hmm. And so she overdoes that, which we've Mm -hmm. never seen, you know. Yeah. So not not to claim that her behavior before now has been healthy, but she has been sort of managing it properly, you know. Right. Managing the unhealthy behavior as healthily as you could hope for. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. And then she's thrown into the garbage. Yes. You know, and then told she's like, it's just her internal monologue externalized. But she has to go deal with Wendy, who she you know, she already feels shitty about it. You know, but she has Mm -hmm. to go do it because that's the only reason that Jerry is helping hope. Yes. And I think when I really think that it's thinking about hope more than Mm -hmm. even herself that gets her to jump out of the way of the train. Like, yeah, Mm -hmm. the job's not done with Wendy or with Kilgrave because of hope. And to to kind of circle this all back around to my love of that hard boiled detective, it's that Mm -hmm. they're not good, but they have 
underneath all that tarnish a heart of gold. Like they can't quite let go as much as they, they wish they could. You know, they wish they yeah. were number, but they it's, can't it's be. It's empathy as a curse. Yes. You know, it is yeah. the curse of empathy. And these these people, these characters, you know, would love for it to be simpler. And she even says that later on. I think it's in the next episode, you know, um, but they can't. And so they're stuck in this space, you know, and she gives this whole speech to Wendy and she says, you know, until you would do anything not to feel it, you know, mm -hmm. and then she's in front of that train and thinking, what am I going to do to not feel this? Right. And then we follow that up with this really lovely turn and reference to earlier in the season when she found Malcolm, you know, yeah. basically incapacitated in the elevator. And now Malcolm, who she helped dry out, finds her incapacitated in the elevator and so those tables have turned and he's helping her into her apartment you know and earlier in this episode we of course saw Kilgrave interacting with Reuben and yeah. then he brings her into her apartment she lies down on the bed and discovers Reuben dead in her bed you know um and it's it's one of the most horrifying Things. she she's got his blood all over her body she throws herself against the wall and you see the blood as she falls as she slides down the wall you see the line of blood that was on her back um, and there he is with a knife in his hand clearly had slit his own throat you know and then yeah. died in her bed and she just she cannot anymore i mean this is the point where she breaks she she looks at her hands and of course like you know could we ever possibly go for she's blood on her hands like literal <laughs> blood on her hands we're not even in metaphor anymore you know we're just putting it right out there um so it's it's this really nice thing and then like this idea to go into supermax is again i think like another form of a dance with suicide if she's in supermax first of all Kilgrave would have to go through seven layers of security in order to get to her. It would be recorded. She would have evidence, and that's part of what she wants. But also, if she's in Supermax, then the the weight of the responsibility of her power and her choices kind of goes away. Yeah. You know, it ends it in a different way. It's not a suicidal way, but it's treated as suicide. She spends this day, you know, her, her last day, you know, saying goodbye to people, threatening Trisha's mom, <laughs> um, you know, going up on the Brooklyn Bridge so that she can look down over the city and say goodbye, you know? Um, and so it's it's really, like, it's so nicely put together and and sort of reflective of this this dance with either literal or metaphorical suicide that she's playing with. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to equate putting yourself in jail directly with suicide. But I think that we can definitely, for the purposes of this episode, lay actual suicide next to ending any kind of normal life, you know? Right. I think she wants it life. to end, you know? Yeah, she just wants yeah. it to end. But the thing is, like, putting herself in prison is ending it in, in a different way from suicide. But we're treating it kind of in that same way, this mm -hmm. day of yeah. goodbyes. She's trying I mean, to get it's an end to her trash. life. It's an end to her life as she knows it. Yeah. You know, um, while still making it possible for her to draw Kilgrave out and maybe, you know, have a shot at like getting him, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, we make it abundantly clear in this episode. It's not a great plan, but yeah. it's not it's not the we'll see what the worst plans are, you know, oh, later. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. It It is 100% a bad plan that makes sense for Jessica because she just wants to not have to do this anymore. Yeah, she just wants it to stop in whatever way she can make it stop. You know, that's what she wants. Um, and of course, we have this like wonderful little moment with Rebecca De Mornay playing Dorothy, uh, Trisha's mom. Yes. And she goes in to talk to her. And she says, you know, she's like, don't go near her. And Rebecca DeMornay is like, I'm her mother. And she goes, you're her pimp. <laughs> and it was really, it was kind of nice the way that they like, um, you know, she goes in and she threatens her because she was what was keeping Dorothy away from Trish. And she knows if she's in prison that Dorothy is going to find a way to get to Trish. And she's like, Trish does not have any defenses against you. Yeah. Yeah. So she's going in. If you try anything, I will find out. I will come for you and it will hurt. <laughs> so I kind of like liked that. Yeah. I love the glimpses that we get into Trish and Jessica's backstory. Yeah. Before we get to the flashbacks. Yeah. You know? Like even before that, we get a lot of the shading filled in here. And I'll put a pin in this for some of our conversation about Trish. I think this is the beginnings. We can kind of start understanding why Trish is so focused on no longer being saved by anyone, but especially yes. Jessica. You yeah. Know? Because mm-hmm. it's pretty clear. I mean, I think Jessica would say, you saved me too, because you gave right. me somebody to care about. You know, you mm-hmm. gave me a sister. You gave me family after I lost mine. But Trish's, you literally saved me from the hell that is my mother and the career she yeah. built for me. It, mm-hmm. you know, feels a little more pointed for Trish. And she doesn't want to be in that space anymore. And we can see that here we are in the present. And Jessica is still saving her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. That's good stuff. There's a lot of relationship stuff between Trish and Jess that gets filled in by Jess's conversation with Trish's mom. Pretty strong writing. It's really, really well done. And that's the way you do it. You know, you sprinkle in the exposition into motivations that are current, you know. Um, So it was it was a really, really nice scene. I enjoyed that a lot. And then, you know, later we have her finally all day. She's been looking for Trish. You know, she comes back. Trish and Malcolm have, in the meantime, <laughs> gotten rid of Ruben's body. Yeah. Which is terrible and horrible. And at the same time, there is something about a dead body wrapped up in a blanket or a rug that is kind of always funny. I don't know. Maybe it's just my own darkness. But like, there's something about that that always feels so ridiculous. It's almost funny. Um, but we have this moment with, uh, with Jessica and Trish where Jessica says, I have a plan. And Trish says, you have guilt and shame and it is clouding your judgment. You know, um, whereas, of course, what clouds Trish's judgment is a hero complex and a tragic taste in men, uh, which, of course, we're going <laughs> to well, get to in a little bit. Aren't we all better at seeing other people's problems than our own? Oh, certainly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. certainly. Oh, certainly. Um, but, you know, I mean, when you think about Trish, like, you, you know, we're talking about like her relationship with her mother. And we have that flashback to when they came to pick up Jessica. And Jessica gets in the car and she looks up at Trish and we see these bruises on her neck like somebody tried to strangle her. Right. And presumption is that's her mom. But I mean, the thing is, like her mother being essentially her pimp. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. making money off of what she has Trish doing, um, leaving visible bruises, you know, on her daughter feels like 
um, like something that would endanger her. So it felt a little weird to me. I have kind of two thoughts about that. And one of them is mm-hmm. slightly spoilery, but I'll dance around it. You know? Okay. I mean, one of them is I think that Trish's mom also has substance abuse problems. Yeah. I, I, um, I don't think Trish came to that on her own entirely you know mm-hmm. uh in fact i think probably trish's mom enabled that to a certain extent so right. what i would say there is if we assume that the physical abuse is directly from trish's mom it's possible that she's not always as in control of herself as she would like to be yeah mm-hmm. the other thing is looking forward to something we discover in season two mm-hmm. the you're her pimp may be more literal yeah. than we think right now, and it may and not have actually it, yeah. been Trish's mom that bruised Trish up. Yeah, but it so was. We'll put a pin in that disturbing. for season two. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's disturbing no matter what, and I think absolutely. Yeah. It, it gives us this like um, this kind of insight into Trish's. You know, nobody is ever going to lay their hands on me again. You know, like that yes. whole thing and like her whole hero complex and all of that. I think it does kind of open up that space to understand a little more deeply where Trish is coming from, you know, with that stuff. Um, but then, you know, we have Jessica going out, finding Malcolm, who has just, you know, dumped the body in the water, diving into the water, ripping Ruben's head off, putting it in a plastic bag and carrying it to the precinct, which I hope is around the corner because that's an awkward way to travel. <laughs> no, I agree. I mean, in fact, you make me wonder how Malcolm got down there with the entire body in the first place. But I am wondering about that. I was thinking about that. I'm like, how did, how do you get in a cab? And you're just like, no, nah, it's just a rug, man. Keep driving. You know, <laughs> like, I think you do not. Um, I so, don't think so, yeah. Malcolm's got some junky buddies? I don't know. I mean, there's there's some ways we can backfill that, but it's tough, you know. Yeah. No, it's it's really crazy. So, um, but we have Jessica taking this head in a bag, dumping it on the detective's desk. It's so horrible. Yeah. Um, and it's so terrifying. And yet so over the top that it's almost ridiculous like it's almost funny in this completely ridiculous way you know yeah um yeah it's absurdist if nothing else yeah it really really is it really is um so uh, you know of course then we're there in the precinct we have hogarth coming in with her weird moment of i am her lawyer which that was the that was one of the only moments in this episode that felt like off to me that felt wrong you know um but jessica in there trying to talk to this guy trying to make him see trying to get him to put her in prison and this guy who'd been suspicious of her is now like what is going on you know he clearly thinks that there's more going on here than originally he had thought you know with jessica yeah yeah he's a good detective He's a good detective. The cop comes in, pulls Jessica out, and she walks out, and all of these cops all have their guns trained on each other or on themselves. We see cops in other rooms through the window with their guns and their own heads, and it is so horrifying because you know Kilgrave is there, but you don't see him right away, and then his head pops up over the cubicle wall, (laughs) and it is, and this whole scene 
is so masterful. I, I basically like in our notes, what I like when there's a really good line of dialogue, I'll jot it down, you know? Yeah. I have basically jotted down Kilgrave's entire speech for this whole thing, you know? Everything, like when he goes on his rant, crappy fluorescent lights and cockroaches and loud cell phones and the smell of piss. I am trying to profess eternal love here, people, you know? His idea of love as he makes this confession to Jessica that she is the only person who's ever made him feel yearning. Before I met you, I got everything I wanted and I didn't realize how unsatisfactory that was until you left me to die. I mean, my God, as a sentence, as a line of dialogue, that's kind of hard to beat. The worst part for me is that you could pluck that out of there and drop it into a completely different, much more romantic context and be like, oh, my gosh. Oh, no. Seriously. But this is the worst. Like, yeah. Yeah. The fact that he's so sincere about it just makes it even worse, you know, and right. and we feel Jessica's confusion in that moment where she's like, what is actually happening here? You know? Yeah, she's, she's like, almost certainly me. disassociating at this point. Anyway, she walked several blocks with a severed head in a bag. She dove into what I'm presuming I think is the East River and and tore the head off her neighbor. <laughs> like, yeah, she has got to be so traumatized at this point. You've got to shut down. You can't process. She, There's no way she can process all of this. And then to have him show up in that moment with this abusive, this this toxic, you know, quote unquote love, which is really just obsession, you know, um, it's terrifying. It's devastating. You know, she's like, if you love me, why are you torturing me? And he says, I'm not torturing you. Why would I? I love you. You know, um, all of this is so creepy and yet like you know obviously you know exaggerated wildly exaggerated but not a million miles off from like a a, a standard abusive relationship you know um it's it's really terrible and then i'm hoping you'll choose me just like i've chosen you so here he is this guy who has taken away her free will who takes away the free will of everyone but loves her because, or, you know, uh, as well as he can understand love. He's not new to love. He knows what it looks like. He does watch television, after all. Um, so he's he's got this sense of what love is, and he's trying to, you know, because she is the one, the one person who could ever refuse him. And that gives him something that he never had before, and now he's completely obsessed with it. This whole speech, everything he does, and David Tennant, by the way, is a genius. He is amazing in this role. Ladies and gentlemen, David Tennant selling every single thing right here. Yes. Yes. I love his delight at the end as he's leaving, too. He looks in the bag and he goes, manual decapitation. You are full of surprises. He's just delighted with her. I want us to be an adorable couple so badly. <laughs> so badly. We would be so cute. It'd be so much fun. Um, so all of that is creepy and yet wonderful and horrible and delightful in this really sick way. And all of it, I was transfixed when I was watching this. It was just so incredibly, incredibly good. The fact that it's a half a step away from very recognizable, obsessive, 
abusive behavior. And it's also half a step away from many, many tearful declarations of feelings in airports. Uh huh. Yes. Is very uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, a lot of those obsessive, you know, things that like those airport rom com runs are also, if you look at them, you know, at all, uh, also fairly toxic in their own ways. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not that unrelated. And when he makes that reference, I'm not new to love. I have watched television, you know? Yes. Um, Oh. Yeah. That's, that's the worst. That is. I mean, clearly he is a depraved and terrible individual, but there is something about that line that just strikes me to my core that he would say that. And again, he's not a fool. He's not an idiot. When he said that, he meant it. And that is horrifying, you know, like like just that that's the picture we're going to get. That's he's going to build his entire worldview on what it means to love someone based on what he has seen in television. Yeah. Jessica's in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, is that the the idea of romantic love that is sold to us through our media is, you know, not a million miles away from this toxic obsession, you know, um, and that ends up causing a lot of problems, too. So all of it, I think, is it's one of the most brilliantly written scenes and acted scenes like in television. It is so wonderful and then these cops are there you know it is so horrifying them with their you know guns trained on each other and then he says in 30 seconds you are gonna put down your guns and you are gonna laugh this is the best joke you've ever heard you know and when they start laughing i mean it is it adds to that creep factor it's so wonderfully done yeah it's it's a funhouse mirror and I love it, but I'm also glad when we leave to go to a different yeah. funhouse mirror. But still. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, but let's go back a little bit to a previous funhouse mirror with Trish. Um, I, I have such complicated feelings toward Trish. Yeah. She she I both like her and can't stand her at the same time. I, I mean, I think these are the right feelings, though. OK. All right. So it's not just me. <laughs> I mean, I think I think of the two of us, I'm finding that I have a little more sympathy for where she's at, you know? Mm-hmm. But I mean, I share your frustration. Like, she's complicated. I mean, everybody on this show is complicated, but she really is, like, making very good decisions at the exact same time that she is making very bad decisions. Yes. And that's complex. Mm-hmm. It it makes us feel things. Conflicting yeah, things I mean, about her. You know, she's she's just a person. Like she's the least powered person in that whole trio. But she decides that they lost Kilgrave, and that's all about her. So she has this plan to go after him, get him into the hermetically sealed room. You know, on her own, <laughs> and won't talk to Jessica about it. Um, it's an incredibly stupid plan. And then Simpson is the worst. And I really don't need to see her and Simpson having sex ever again. It's just gross. Like, we have like unplugged the fairly healthy sex scenes Mm -hmm. of Jessica and Luke and plugged in the unhealthy. I mean, they look, they're also shot very similarly and it's just two attractive people doing what they do and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But the context of the whole thing is so different and which makes me think it's probably purposeful. 
you know. I think so. I think so. But Simpson is so incredibly gross. And I just like every minute that we spend with him, I am more annoyed by him as well. Um, but we do like right as I'm I'm hating Trish and I'm like, oh, my God, you're being so stupid. Just shut up. You know, um, we get this moment where where Simpson says some people need to be removed from this world and Kilgrave is one of them. And she says, we don't get to decide that killers decide that. And that's what makes them killers. And then I'm like, all right. You know, I like her a little, you know, <laughs> she says um, the hero she- stuff. Right. And then she says, I want Kilgrave to live long and alone and despised until he wants to die, but can't. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> like, I, I understand that. I feel very seen by that sentiment. It's still not justice, but it's a vengeance yeah. that does not taint her or Jessica further. Right, right. And it is like, and I understand that need for vengeance. You know, like, I get that, the desire for, for vengeance. Um, but she's just like, she's so, she's brave. And I like that. But the line between brave and stupid is shimmery and easy to fall through, you know? Um, and then we get this moment at the end when Malcolm brings her in to see Ruben's body. And she says, I'm not going to scream. I'm not going to scream. And he's like, it's terrible. What I'm about to show you is terrible. You know, he warns her. And then, of course, we have her screaming, you know, which is this really stupid kind of sacrifice of Trish's essential character. You know, she's tougher than that. She's been through some shit. Like, I mean, seeing a dead body like that in the bed is going to be traumatizing. But he warned her. Like, he warned her it was going to be really, really bad. Um, and I think that Trish, with warning, would handle that. And it felt to me like like the writing kind of... It, writing is so good in this episode, but then suddenly kind of betrays Trish's character here. Well, yeah. I mean, she is sacrificed for a joke there. And I, I think even worse, like a follow-up line from her would have would have let them have the joke and also kind of salvaged her a little bit yeah um Mm -hmm. you know because malcolm says you said you weren't going to scream and if her response had been like i was expecting boogie nights not the shining or something right right, to show she was prepared for some right she was maybe prepared for jessica like yeah sick and you know dealing with her alcoholism or having so you know she's prepared for jessica in a mess or i don't know what she's prepared for you know right but i mean but then but it's like murder. look at the context but look at the context of everything that's been going on i mean there's well, two sure. people dead in jessica's elevator you know there's people dying all over the place and if malcolm is part of this and knows what's going on and says it's bad then you know it's going to be blood on the walls bad yeah like yeah and and trish is is stupid in a lot of ways but like not in that way so it's one of these things it's one of these classic you know the woman says she can handle it the woman says she's strong enough but guess what she's not she's just yeah it's garbage and i didn't i didn't like it um especially because the writing and everything else is so excellent and speaking of excellent i just need to talk a little bit about malcolm because (laughs) i love him i love him with every fiber of my being his pulling Jessica out of the elevator, talking about how running helps with his sobriety, you mm-hmm. know, um, keeping his cool. He calls in Trish. He's trying to protect Jessica. Everything that he is, is so he's calm. He's quiet. He's thoughtful. Um, he's caring. You know, he is, he still has, despite everything, despite being in the city, right. Surrounded by this dark noir version, you know, of New York. 
he still has the the softness of spirit and of heart. He hasn't let it harden him. And yeah. everything about him, like whenever he is on screen, I feel comforted just by his presence. Um, and I love, oh my God, I love the moment when he's when he's tying the cement blocks to Ruben's body. And he says that little French, you know, prayer over him, um, you know, where he says that just because you didn't have a beautiful funeral, you know, or just because you have a beautiful funeral doesn't mean you're getting into heaven. You know, so so even though Ruben cannot have a beautiful funeral, it doesn't mean that he's not going to get into heaven, you know. And it's just this wonderful, like, French that just drops off his tongue. It's so beautiful. We are getting a glimpse into who Malcolm was before Kilgrave showed up. Yeah. You know, and yeah. and I think the the kind of quiet thematic point of that is that Kilgrave has defended himself by saying he was an addict waiting to happen. I didn't make him do anything he didn't want to do. Right. Well, that's does not seem to be true. I mean, people are yeah. complicated, you know, but to have Malcolm so quickly return to I don't want to say just good habits, but like empathetic, caring yeah. habits. I mean, mm-hmm. That's who he is, you know, uh, which is not to say he might not have had a substance abuse issue without Kilgrave, but right. mm-hmm. it just gives lie to Kilgrave's words. Yeah, well, absolutely. You know, um, but I mean, he was like, I think he was like a social worker or something like, wasn't he? He's yeah. was going to school yeah. for that or something. So like he has he is empathy, you know, and I mean, the thing is that the at the core of Jessica Jones as a television show, as a story is really this this war to preserve empathy. That empathy is actually the only real goodness that can be found in the world. You know, is that sense of of empathy and feeling for other people and and trying to care for other people, be kind where you can. You know, um, so Malcolm to me is really representative of everything that Jessica is trying to protect in the world. You know, that she is kind of taking the hits so that she can protect what is essentially Malcolm, even though very specifically she protected him a little bit, but he's actually protecting her. So his softness, his empathy is really a strength. It is not a weakness. You know, it is what he draws upon to be able to do what he's got to do, you know, and here he's throwing Reuben, you know, into the water. Um, A beautiful funeral doesn't guarantee heaven in this in this lovely French, you know, as kind of like a a eulogy for him Mm -hmm. to give this this guy something, you know, Um, it is it's so wonderful. And I just got I love him so much. And he he makes he makes Jessica Jones easier to watch. He he brings in that comfort and that warmth that you really don't get, I think, with any of the other characters. Yeah. Yes. That makes a lot of sense. I think I feel like he's also a bit of a window into Trish because Trish's bad decisions (laughs) are also her trying to protect Jessica the best she can. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, we talked she's got she's got some personal issues mixed in there that mess it up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Whereas Malcolm's feels a little more pure of heart in this moment. Yeah. But yeah, that's what it is. It's like you take care of people the best you can and then they will take care of you the best you can. And I'm a little horrified that I can say that and that we learned that moral by dumping bodies in the river. But, you know, (laughs) it's a noir piece. It's noir, right? Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't going to be all fluffy puppies. Absolutely. Um, So then we get Ruben's sister, Robin, right, Um, who is so weird and she has been so awful 
you know, up until now. Um, the actress playing her is uh, Colby Maniffy, and I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Probably not. Um, but she's really, really good playing this strange character. And I absolutely love, like, one of my favorite, I mean, in a, a episode of television with a lot of great dialogue, there is this wonderful moment where she's talking to Malcolm and she's trying to find out what's going on between, you know, um, Ruben and Jessica. And she says, he's been drawing their initials with a big heart around them on his etch sketch And I'm like, there is something so beautiful. Specificity is like one of the hallmarks of truly great writers is the ability to use specifics in order to express an entire idea that words will evade otherwise you know mm -hmm. that like this this idea that you don't have a word to get around so you use these specifics and that is honestly one of my favorite lines <laughs> ever written <laughs> it's so wonderful and evocative in its specificity um so i absolutely love that um it tells us a lot about both of them Yes. And yes, their relationship. No, it really does. Yes, it absolutely does. Um, and then we have her, you know, trying to find this out, talking to Malcolm. I can tell when somebody's lying. And so he just lies to her again. And she's like, I knew it. You know, <laughs> Just give her a better lie. Just a more just palatable lie. A better lie. And then, you know, at the end, when Jessica comes back and she's sitting on the bed and she's talking to Jessica, trying to figure out where Reuben went. And she's talking about the zoo and the giraffes. He loves their long necks. He's very sensitive about his neck, you know. And in that moment, she touches her neck. And it is so, like, you didn't need to do that TV show. Like, you didn't need <laughs> to do that. But it does, and it's, it's like, re-traumatizing. But, I mean, so beautifully and powerfully done. Like, I love it. But Jesus. <laughs> At the end of this episode, it's a bit much. Well, I think... I think I'm seeing it afresh through your kind of lens of this is, you know, really all about empathy, right? Because yeah. we all found Robin and Ruben weird mm -hmm. and off-putting oh, from yeah. jump, you know? Yeah. And in Robin's case, really like um, just prickly and difficult to deal just with. terrible. You know, yeah, yeah. just kind of awful. Yeah. And then here we are when it's like, nope, these are human beings and you're supposed to feel a thing about them. And we're like, you yes. bastards, just yes. how dare you? You know, How dare you make me see the, first of all, you show me the assholery of these people and right. then you make me see their humanity. And now I have to hold cognitively dissonant thoughts in my head. You know, don't make me do that. Um, yeah, no, it is. It's really, it's really good. And she, she remains weird and prickly while still having that humanity. I mean, she's so upset that Ruben is gone, but in the moment, her concern is for him. He yes. can't take care of himself. He needs me. Make sure he has this, you know, and she just goes on and starts telling Jessica he doesn't like, you know, the bread with the seeds in the crust, you know, all of these things and it would show how she has been caring for him, you know, in her way. While, you know, also being abusive. I mean, let's not forget. We've seen how she talks to him, you know. Um, but there is such a, a complicated sense of empathy there. And there's such a complicated sense of who these characters are and making them. I mean, this is vulnerability, man. Vulnerability 
and some like sense of love, sense of goodness. We see how she loves him. And if he's gone, she wants to tell Jessica how to take care of him. Yeah. At no point in those moments does Robin say, well, what the hell's going to happen to me now? At no point does she say that. She's concerned about him. He's so sensitive about his neck. He wants to go see the giraffes, you know? I mean, it's, God, it's so, and this is the thing. Like, this is what Jessica Jones does to me. It makes me feel all of these contradictory feelings at the same time. And it's terrible and wonderful. And I love it. Yeah. Yes. Exactly that thing. (laughs) Yeah, I know. And speaking of which, then we've got Jerry. I was about to say, speaking of people we absolutely don't have complicated feelings about. I don't. I don't care about Jerry or Pam, but I kind of love Wendy. Like in these scenes, I I do like like Wendy. So while I don't care about Jerry and I have no complicated feelings about Jerry and there's no dissonance there, um, like in those scenes, I both don't care about them and enjoy Wendy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think I think I probably my first watch through was in the same boat. But now knowing how things go and that this is a big part of why they go that way. Yeah. I'm just like, yeah, okay. But but you're not wrong. Win- Wendy is super strong and has like finally decided to sort of win whatever battle she can win here, you know? Yeah. And it's it's not nothing, but it's also not what she wanted. Like nobody wins here, but she's going to make it hurt, which yeah, exactly. feels very Jessica Jones. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is absolutely very Jessica Jones. There's, you know, she goes into Jerry's office and she says, you sent your freakish thug. You made me afraid. It was sickening, you know? And I like, God, I, just, I don't know. I like the way she stands up. Jerry is terrible yeah. and horrible. And she knows what kind of a monster Jerry is. She knows everything. And she still stands up to her. You know, and I like when she blackmails her and says 75% of your assets or you lose it all. (laughs) And I'm like, all right, all right, go Wendy. (laughs) (laughs) I like seeing her stick it to Jerry because I really, I really don't care. I, I so don't care about Jerry and her girlfriend and even her ex-wife and all of this divorce stuff. But if I have to sit through those scenes, at least somebody is slapping Jerry. There's your glimmer of hope. Exactly. Your glimmer of hope in this plot cul-de-sac. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I also, there's one more thing in the episode that I really liked, and it was this moment when Jessica goes to say goodbye to Luke and he's not there, but the bartender comes out. And of course we have this magical bartender archetype, right? You know, the guy behind (laughs) the bar who knows all, you know? And so he's like, he's like, he doesn't miss you. He only missed one of them and she's dead. And that doesn't matter. And he just goes off on this whole thing. And then he says, you know what happens when you burn a bridge? You got to learn to swim or fly. And then he walks off laughing and I'm like, what even the hell? Is that? First of all, what in the hell is that? And also, by the way, Jessica can sort of fly. So exactly, you know, <laughs> but it was just such a funny and weird moment. And the, the character as the bartender is just so strange. I don't know. I, I, I it was weird, but I loved it. It sort of doesn't fit with the whole episode mm-hmm. in a way, but it's right. so short that you're just like, wait, okay. Jessica's just having a really off day. You know, it's very complicated. <laughs> Just an off day. So overall, I thought that AKA Top Shelf Perverts was actually pretty good. Um, I think it's probably one of the top episodes for me in the run so far. 
Well, I agree. And it's one of the top episodes in one of the top shows. So as far as the Netflix MCU stuff goes. So yeah, it's, it's a jewel. Hi, this is Dr. Kelly Jones of Welcome to the End Times, Still Dead, and Orgasm. Chipperish Media is entirely supported by listener donations, which make all the podcasts you love possible. Podcasts like Still Pretty about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Still Dead about Angel the Series, Listen Up A-Holes about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Orgasm about explosive inspiration, Welcome to the End Times about Good Omens, Metaphors Be With You about Star Wars, and How Story Works about, well, how stories work. Chipperish Media's generous patrons keep all of Chipperish's great content free and ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out how a couple of bucks a month can support one of the best independent podcast companies in the known universe. Thanks, y'all. And now we can move into talking about another really great episode. Season one, episode eight, a.k.a. WWJD. In AKA WWJD, Jessica goes on a tour of her childhood home with Kilgrave, who has recreated the entire thing down to the last detail. Trish calls, not knowing Jessica's with Kilgrave, and reports that Simpson has gone missing. Jessica tells her not to worry, hangs up, and follows Kilgrave up to her room. He leaves her there with a box on her bed. Inside is a purple dress, which she rips to shreds before going to sleep. That night, Jessica goes down to dinner and discovers that if she misbehaves, the help, a chef named Laurent and a housekeeper named Alva, will slit their own throats. She apologizes to them and goes back upstairs and finds her brother's bedroom door ajar. She opens it and there's Simpson trying to rescue her, claiming she's under his control as he tries to quietly drag a superpowered woman out of a house she clearly doesn't want to leave. Simpson, stupid human or the stupidest human? Or maybe just trying to do one nice thing in his awful life, Lonnie. (laughs) No, he's clearly the stupidest human. Turns out John Wayne here put a bomb in the basement and he's planning to blow it up when all the help is outside at once, taking out the trash, because of course they do that as a group activity, including the bodyguards. Jessica hides Simpson, but tells Kilgrave about the bomb and the security guy removes it. She talks to Kilgrave about what he does to people, and when he leaves, she pulls out Simpson's phone. She got a recording of him sort of confessing. Jessica gets a message to Hogarth that she's with Kilgrave. Meanwhile, Trish tracks down Simpson, who lies about where Kilgrave is. He tells her that they're not superheroes and they should stay out of Jessica's way. Back at the house, Jessica has a dream about her family blaming her for their deaths and telling her to make it right. She goes down to have breakfast with Kilgrave and tries to record him again when Mrs. DeLuca from next door comes over and talks shit about Jessica's dead family with her sitting right there. And it appears that everybody is an asshole on this show, even in the suburbs. Kilgrave uses his powers to give Mrs. DeLuca a gentle rebuke by his standards and clearly wants to do worse to her, but Jessica stops him. They go inside and she confronts him with all the ways he violated her. He shows her a video of him as a child being experimented on and violated by his parents. She asks him if he's really saying that the reason he behaves this way is because no one taught him how to be good. They watch news coverage of a hostage situation on television and she tells him they should go for a ride. 
Jessica takes him to the site of the hostage negotiation and gets him into the house. He says he doesn't want to do it, but she drags him along, forcing him to use his powers to stop the hostage situation without bloodshed. They go back to the house and he tells her he's got a whole new purpose in life, but he needs her to keep him from killing people because he genuinely doesn't know right from wrong and Jessica realizes he's right. She goes for a walk and he lets her, but not without a warning that if she doesn't come back, Laurent and Alva won't survive it. Jessica goes to see Trish to ask her advice. She's having a what would Trish do moment, and hopefully it's just so that she can do the opposite. Now that's not fair. <laughs> Don't ever ask Trish what would Trish do and do what Trish would do. It's not gonna end well. Listen, you ask Trish what you should do and then she gives good advice because she can see your problems better than her own. Okay. Okay. Okay, fair enough, but not what would Trish do if she was me? Because it would be something stupid. That, okay, okay. <laughs> or at the very least ill-advised, I agree. At any rate, Jessica presents her dilemma to Trish, saying that she'd have to stay with Kilgrave in order to harness his powers for good. You know, I love putting things that I know you're going to disagree with in the middle of the script. Just to have that moment, because we don't read these before we do them live. <laughs> When you're like, hang on a minute, <laughs> right after I made you say something against your will. I'm Kilgrave here. You purple manned me. How <laughs> dare you? you. <laughs> Jessica returns back to no one's surprise more than Kilgrave's. She tells him he was right. Maybe they can balance the scales. She serves up Chinese food and invites Laurent and Alva to join them. The first step to doing good is not being a prick. Laurent and Alva eat, then pass out, and just as Kilgrave is wondering what the fuck, Jessica comes up behind him, injects the anesthetic into his neck, and says this is what Jessica would do. And then, as she's carrying his unconscious body out of the house, the bodyguard attacks, but then Simpson, all decked out in black gear like Fred on a Scooby-Doo stakeout, takes out a bodyguard and follows along behind Jessica, begging her to let him kill Kilgrave like an annoying little brother. She jumps into the sky with Kilgrave's body, and then Mrs. DeLuca approaches Simpson with the bomb in a bag in her hand. She detonates it, and the camera moves in on flaming pieces of Mrs. DeLuca on the sidewalk, lighting up the dark night. AKA WWJD was written by Scott Reynolds and directed by Simon Sellen Jones. All right, so Joshua, this episode, maybe like, it's pretty good, not quite as good, I think, as AKA Top Shelf Perverts, um, but it has some it has some good stuff going on. What did you think about it overall? No, I agree. It's not as good as Top Shelf Perverts, but it does a lot of plot movement without yeah. us ever stopping to think about how much plot is being moved forward. Yes. Mm -hmm. Like we really, really move good. into the final act of this thing in this episode. And at no time while you're watching it, do you think, aha, they are moving us into the final act. Exactly. But what we're doing mostly, I mean, it's actually not, it is action driven in that, you know, the, the characters are making choices and, and taking action and doing things. But really what's happening in most of the movement is this internal shifting, you know, like this whole experience for Jessica where she's in her childhood home, you know, and then here is this guy who promises not to touch her until he gets her genuine consent, like a villain saying that to her. And then as he's saying this, I'm thinking, 
okay, is he a truth-telling villain? Which I love, by the way. You know, a villain that will not lie. You know, a villain with with one particular virtue, I think is always really, really fun. Um, and the thing is, is that, like, where would he develop his skills in lying? He doesn't need to lie. It's true. Most of it's the time. True. Yeah. He would just be a walking bag of tells. Yeah, I mean, seriously. So there's this moment when Trish calls and says that Simpson is gone and Jessica gives Kilgrave a look and Kilgrave just shrugs. Right. And she's like, nope. You know, because he doesn't need to lie. So he's honest. And I find that just kind of a really wonderful element to that character. You know, when you've got a character that does have... Um, these really like complicated levels to who they are. I mean, when he shows her the video of what happened to him as a child, you know, I mean, that is really devastating. And you feel for him, you know, as that kid. And when he gains his powers and he tells them to leave him alone, his parents back off and they don't understand what's happening. I mean, he was 10, you know? Yeah, yeah. It makes it... It makes it a very complicated thing because later on when she says, are you seriously telling me that this is all because nobody taught you how to be good? The answer yes. is kind of yes. Kind of, yeah. You know, I mean, he does live in the world and he can see yeah. that not everybody is a fucking monster. But at the same mm -hmm. time, his most formative experiences are with the two people who should be the most loving and protective, turning him into a science project. Yeah. Like it doesn't yeah. cover up everything, but it does make him an an inkling of yeah. vulnerable to us, you know? Well, I mean, I, you kind of do have sympathy for it. And also because like an ultimate power like that, it is essentially corruptive. And for a 10-year-old kid who has been a lab rat, who has had, you know, I mean, you would presume very little interaction with the world, very little opportunity to develop empathy, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, yeah. Um, and being treated that way by his parents. Like you can kind of see how he he literally doesn't know right from wrong. He's just doing what works. And, you know, and with uh, the power, the kind of power that he has, like, I mean, there are a lot of people out there who we think would be good people. But if they had a power like that. You know, maybe not a power like that with no empathy, no sense of guilt, no sense of responsibility, no conscience. Uh, that's pretty, pretty dangerous. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I don't I don't think we're supposed to stray into the area where we go. Well, this excuses everything. You it know? doesn't excuse it, but it does give you a sense. We of, understand. A little yeah. Bit. Of his yeah. vulnerability, how this happened. Like, you know, so it's 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 really, I think, an, an interesting turn you know, in this episode, and you can understand Jessica looking at him and thinking, okay, he just hasn't learned how to, you know, how to use his power. So let's teach him how to use his power. You know, like you can kind of see where she's coming from with that. Um, so I love this whole thing. You know, he's showing her through the house. Um, he says, it's a weird, wild world where anything can happen. Look at us, super strength and mind control in the same house. It's amazing. <laughs> like, I love David Tennant. I love his enthusiasm. I, I kind of love Kilgrave. Like, I enjoy him as a character. I think he's really, really fun. Um, so after dinner... Right. She throws the bottle, finds out that they're going to slit their own throats if she misbehaves, uh, says, I'm sorry to them as they're cleaning up after her, goes upstairs and finds the world's stupidest human um, <laughs> in the hallway, grabbing 
her and trying to drag her out. Okay, she's super powered. If she's under Kilgrave's control, then she's going to kill him easily with her pinky finger without even breaking a nail. And if she's not under his control, she can still, like, you know, yeah. he's not going. It Nobody's is a one-sided fight. Jessica yes. Jones. Nobody's going to drag her anywhere she didn't want to go. Um, so we have this whole thing, which is really incredibly stupid. And then we have this moment that I swear to God infuriated me. She throws him on the bed, right? Yes. Straddles him and then starts talking to him, telling him what her plan is and all this kind of stuff. Um, and I, I had no idea. I'm like, why the hell is this happening? And then I realized there's one episode in this entire run of the first season in which a woman was neither director nor writer. And this is it. And that just painfully explains that otherwise kind of. And when, I, hmm, let me say that differently. I was about to say innocuous choice, but it isn't. No. But it's also something you kind of have to be tuned into. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because we see it all the time. Like people throwing yeah. somebody to the bed and straddling them is yeah. a thing we see in fiction constantly. But, you know, but one gender to another gender, like, you know all over the place, sometimes for mm -hmm. the same reasons. Anyway, it's it's when you have and I mean, this is, you know, part of our like heteronormative bullshit as yes. well. But when you have a woman and a man, you know, prone on top of each other, which we do all the time, like the stupid, you know, and it happens all the time. And it's supposed to be this funny beat where, you know, two people have the sexual tension or th like in some kind of action situation and she falls on top of him. It's just this sexy moment and how much they want to play the romantic sexual tension from that depends upon the particular instance. But it happens all the time mm -hmm. where they're in this, they're thrown into a missionary position of some sort, you know, um, and it is, ugh, God, it's just freaking degrading. And every time I see it, it infuriates me. And then here we are in this show that has managed to avoid the male gaze with Jessica successfully all along. And then... The first moment, and I think this is true. I'm pretty sure this is true because I remember looking at it when we first, when I first looked at the season. Um, okay, let me double check before I make this accusation. Let me double check and make sure because I am pretty sure. <laughs> well, I went even if it's not the only one, it explains I think this. This is beat. the only one. Yeah, um, this is because I remember looking that there was uh, only one episode of the season in which there wasn't a woman in at least either the writing or the. Um, but let me just make sure I'm right before I. All right. I just did a quick check. And no, it is not the only episode with both a man uh, in the role of writer and director. But there aren't a lot of those episodes um, in this season. And we have a, usually a woman in the position of either director or writer on all of these. But I think the fact that we have men in those positions, you know, on in, in this episode um, is probably not a coincidence that we also have this particular like you know really kind of um misogynistic trope you know um and so it's yeah it's a little bit it's a little bit disappointing to see it there i mean it's a lot disappointing to see it there it's really annoying and the whole time i'm so distracted by it. i'm like why is she straddling him on the bed like there's no need for her to do that she can throw the piece of shit up against a wall which she did you know um 
so all of that I found really distracting and um, and really demeaning for Jessica's character. The the thing, it's like you can see if you kind of look at the wider context, you can kind of see how the scene went that way. She can't really throw him because she's trying to stay quiet, you know. Yeah. And he needs her to shut up and listen to him and all that stuff. And it just seems like throwing him on the bed where it's soft and quiet is like a reasonable response to the problems of the scene, except for your kind of raindrop and thunderstorm metaphor, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, there is that. But also it's like she can throw him on the bed and stick her finger in his face right? because she's powerful. She can throw him on yeah, the just bed, hold him there. stay standing, and put her hand on his chest, yeah. on his neck, just putting pressure. Yes. There are a million things she can do. You don't straddle somebody on a bed without it being referential to sex. And that is not what this scene is about. That is not what Simpson and Jessica are about. Um, it is an unnecessary sexual connotation in this particular moment. And I, I really, really don't care for it. Then, of course, he gives her this stupid, I put a bomb in the basement, <laughs> you know, idiocy, um, which I mean, OK, like it, I understand you, you took umbrage at my whole like stupidest human, whatever. Um, <laughs> but that is the stupidest thing. Like because what he's I'll wait until they take out the trash. Yes, because we all know that everybody takes the trash out together. Lonnie, he's family. lying about that. Oh, God. He's lying about that. He just said that to Jessica. He's not serious. He's going to blow them all up. He's a piece of garbage. Simpson is garbage. Garbage human. Now, oh, this is so... There's a thing I want to say, but it's a little bit of a spoiler for a future episode of this season. But I want to say that, that, that... Hmm. Okay, how about everybody who doesn't want to have a spoiler, skip ahead 30 seconds. All right, go. (laughs) I think that Simpson is standing in both for toxic masculinity in general, but also for Mm -hmm. a very American military way of dealing with problems. Blowing up a house in a suburban block where there are homes on either side that could easily catch fire. What? You can't you can't do a carbon monoxide leak. And then when everybody passes out, get the innocent people out or something like do you have to? I mean, I guess. When, you know, all you have is a bomb, everything looks like a nail. I don't know. But I'm just like. I mean, I'm just saying the stupid. I feel like you feel the dumbest part of this is that he's going to wait for them to take the trash out. And I'm like, no, he's not. He's just telling that to Jessica. The dumbest part is all of it. The dumbest part is you sneak into this place and put in a bomb. The dumbest part is that you're going to blow up this house, which is very close to other houses. There are trees lining everywhere. You're going to you're not going to blow up one house. You're going to blow up three houses and take out a bunch of innocent people on that block. Um, That's it's an incredibly dangerous. It's not a controlled situation. Um, Not to mention the fact that hanging around, you know, like trailing Kilgrave and Kilgrave didn't see him sitting there. He's right next to the house. He's sitting in that thing watching him. Like Kilgrave doesn't notice that. It's all like it's it's poorly written. It's poorly executed. And if Simpson isn't supposed to be like the dumbest, biggest asshole in the world, you know, I mean, I don't know. You are right about half of that. He is not a good person. And the phrase that would be floating through his head for almost everything you described is acceptable losses. Yeah. Which is why he Uh, lies to Jessica about it. Yeah. Because she does not have acceptable losses. Right. But he's just, he's such an idiot. 
He's I, crawling into this house. He's dangerous. And Kilgrave has, has controlled him before. Like, he's taking unbelievable risks with this. And Kilgrave is going to come after him. I mean, Kilgrave, like, I, I, all of it felt so dumb to me. And I'm like, why do we even need this guy? Why okay. is this guy even here? I'm going to... What a what a space I'm in where I'm defending Simpson. Um, <laughs> he wants Kilgrave dead. He very mm-hmm. seriously does not care who he hurts in order to get Kilgrave dead. But he also doesn't want to go to jail for a bajillion years for getting Kilgrave dead, which is why the bomb yeah. is attached to the gas line so that it looks like it was a gas leak problem. Like this is actually a really good plan if you are okay with serious With acceptable civilian casualties block in suburbia yeah like it's just no it's but terrible. he is okay with that we're not supposed to be <laughs> yeah no he's just he's the worst he's I, the I worst but he's not dumb yeah i don't know i think he's pretty dumb <laughs> he's pretty dumb i think the fact that that kilgrave did not notice him uh, you know, as he's like sitting in his car watching every move everybody makes is just plot armor. You know, there's no way Kilgrave's not going to notice that. You know, you are putting me in so. a position where I have to talk about my past as a private investigator on this show. <laughs> yes, but you weren't tracking Kilgrave. It doesn't matter. That's a, OK. <clears throat> OK, so. um Here's a thing that I have been lightly attempting to leave off of this show about private investigators because I don't want to talk about all my dirty laundry. But I worked for a while as a private investigator. Yes. People are fucking oblivious, Lonnie. They have no idea who is watching them or who is paying attention to them. People are. Kilgrave is not. Kilgrave Kilgrave will be doubly so because he has hired security. No. Yes. I don't believe for a moment. I don't believe for a moment that Kilgrave would. Okay, I'm just saying, like this character is not people. Like what happens in real life and what happens in fiction is different. And Kilgrave is very aware of his surroundings. He's aware of everybody because everybody is a possible tool for him. So he's going to notice some dude, especially a dude that he has manipulated before. You know, there's a lot so, of cars parked up and down that street. I'm telling you. I'm telling <laughs> All you. All right. All right. Parked cars are invisible. I think it's stupid, but let's go ahead and move on because nobody wants to hear us argue about private investigators. It's fine. Anyway, he's not good. I'm not defending Simpson or his choices. He is bad and we are supposed to see him as bad because here's your very minor spoiler. He's going to get worse, you know, Um, (laughs) very shortly. Right. Like, and we Mm -hmm. should see that already with him because he's lying to Trish, which he wouldn't have done a couple of episodes ago. Right. Right. He's got Mm -hmm. a squad together. Not a good guy. Like he's, you know, not a good person. Um, Yeah. Who's getting a group of other less than savory individuals to help him out with his plan. I am not defending his moral rectitude on any level, but I'm saying that if you if you want Kilgrave dead and don't care who gets hurt in the process, but it also can't be pinned to you, this is a rock solid plan. Nah, all right. Fair enough. I still think it's stupid. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> it's definitely bad. It's He's definitely a bad person. So. Yeah. Yeah. Which we can agree on. And now we can move on. I think we can absolutely agree on that and move on. So we have this wonderful, like, uh, I don't know, a kind of face turn, sort of, for for, uh, Kilgrave in the middle of this episode. Navel turn. 
Yeah, <laughs> Jessica pulls him out to uh, attend to a hostage situation in which they they go in, they use his powers to go into this house um, to get the you know women and children free. And then the guy who's holding the gun, Kilgrave says, put the gun in your mouth. And Jessica's like, no. And they have this whole moral argument, you know, <laughs> and Kilgrave's like, he can kill himself. He's never going to be a productive member of society, you know. And then Jessica, reflecting Trish from the episode before, that is not for you to decide. Yeah. You know? And I like that. Um, and then they save the, this family. You know, he sends the guy out to turn himself in. He'll drop the gun, go turn yourself in to the cops. And then as they're, they're leaving, he's like, what a waste of energy. And then Jessica says, was it? You just saved four lives, right? And you can see that, like everything, this is like about power. You know, the power to save people and the power to kill people that's life and death power. And yeah. it kind of has the same sort of rush, you know, I think to it, right? Yeah. Um, there are a lot of psychopaths who become surgeons because of that power, because they like that power. So they're saving people, but it's mostly because they like the power of it, you know? Um, so I think it's it's really interesting. And then he, they go into this whole thing where he's talking about the moral maths. And he's like, how many more lives do you think I'd have to save to get back to zero? Like, he thinks that's possible. Yeah. You know, and Jessica's like, saving someone does not mean unkilling someone else. <laughs> that's not how it works, you know. Um, and so this idea of, like, the moral ledger, you know, has come up actually in a few shows that I, that I talk about. I talk about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. We've talked about it there. I talk about uh, Angel the series. We talk about it there. Um, this idea that, you know, if you've done these terrible things, if you kill people, that somehow saving people, you know, if, if your ledger is, you know, you've, you've saved more than you've killed, then somehow that makes it okay. Um, and of course it doesn't. Because each one is its own individual thing. They don't, they don't rest on each other. They're not, you know, parts of the same thing. Well, it's like, how do you count infinite, right? You yes. murder one person, yeah. you have robbed the world of infinite possibilities. Yeah. Going over here and saving someone and thereby allowing those infinite possibilities to continue on to the future. Infinite yeah. does not minus infinite. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like, they're just, they're not the same thing, you know? Um, so it's really interesting. And then he pitches this idea of them as a dynamic duo, right? You know, he uses his powers and she would be his moral guide. I can't be a hero without you, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, it's another way of manipulating her, keeping her tied to him. Because without her, he's clearly going to kill people, you yes. know? And she feels personally responsible for every person that he kills, you know, and then we see even going back, you know, further into her history that she fought with her brother in the car. Her dad got distracted. And that's why everybody but her died, mm -hmm. you know, in that car accident, um, which is this really terrible weight that she had to carry before, you know, she got her powers before anything happened with Kilgrave. Like she was already carrying that weight and that guilt and that sense of herself as a piece of shit. Right. You know that it's all her fault. And the sense that individual decisions can make or yes. break lives. Yes, absolutely. You know, an un innocuous, unknown individual decisions like she was a dick about the Game Boy. She didn't want her family to die. 
Right. Exactly. Like none of that was deliberate. She didn't mean to do any of that, you know. Um, but it is this, you know, this constant conflict between intent and impact. And what do you hold yourself responsible for? And what do you allow yourself a break on? And she's clearly not allowing herself a break. She has that dream, you know, where uh, where they're saying it's your fault. This happened because of you. We died because of you. Go make it right. And so even though you know, just you saving somebody doesn't mean you can unkill someone else is as much her talking to herself as it is talking to Kilgrave. Like she has already done that math and she knows she can never make it right. Yeah. It, and so so we completely see where Jessica's coming from and we also can mm-hmm. simultaneously call it bullshit. You know, yes, she did not exactly. murder her family in the way that Kilgrave wanders around wrecking lives. She did not ruin yes. her own life and her family's life with purpose or malice of forth. And, you know, whether he meant with malice when he does it, it happens, right? It's it's a yeah. purposeful choice. And she did not make a purposeful choice. Uh, yeah, it's we get it. And we're also like, but Jessica, no, you know. Right. Exactly. You know, and here she is holding herself responsible, not just for the things that she actually had a hand in, but like everybody that Kilgrave hurts, she holds herself responsible for, especially because right now he's doing it to get to her. Right. You know, he's doing it because he's obsessed with her. You know, she's holding herself responsible for everything. And I usually don't care for this feeling guilty for things that I'm not, that the character is not really responsible for, because for me, it feels like that guilt is like this kind of shortcut to vulnerability mm-hmm. um, without actually like it, it drives me crazy in the uh, the Harry Dresden novels written by Jim Butcher, which yeah. I actually really otherwise enjoy. But Harry Dresden is constantly feeling guilty about things that he has no control over and have nothing to do with him, you know, that are not his fault. And like there's just something about that that feels like it's this shortcut to vulnerability and it's it's not. But Jessica, I feel like I can see why she feels responsible. I can absolutely see, you know, where she's coming from with that, even at the same time, while I don't feel, of course, that she is responsible. I think that this is an idea that gets a lot more mileage in superhero stories than Mm -hmm. other stories, or perhaps it deserves the mileage, you know, in superhero stories. And uh, as a side note, I feel similarly about uh, Butcher's work, especially in Dresden. And I think that's because he's very influ- butcher is very influenced by superhero stories you know yeah um mm-hmm. I, I yeah so without going down that trail um when you have these characters who have we talked about this a little bit actually that like when you have yeah. power choosing not to use it to save lives is still a moral choice and it's not yes it's not as bad as choosing it to use it to destroy lives but it's not good either like it's a negative moral choice right. and you can kind of create a space here where that was before Jessica had power, but she came out of that situation with power and you can kind of like really understand how it all got bundled up for her. You know what I mean? I made this one shitty choice and Mm -hmm. it resulted in my family dying and me getting superpowers. Yes, exactly. What is this nightmare universe that I live in? (laughs) And I think that's, superpowers like absolutely um give you that shortcut like it it earns it you know it earns the guilt because everybody that you're not saving no matter how many people you're saving you have the power to save other people and you're not doing it you know but you have to sleep sometimes like you have to like how do you live with that you know and with great power comes great responsibility right i mean uncle ben nailed it right that is absolutely at the core of a lot of these superhero stories and i think it's a great source of vulnerability 
for them. When I see it with more ordinary characters, you know, or especially like, you know, with uh, with Dresden again, it's it's he's always feeling guilty and terrible about things that actually aren't even remotely terrible. It's not like, oh, I didn't save that person. It's like, oh, I, you know once had a negative thought about kicking a cat and then the cat fell. You <laughs> that know, person was hurt guilty. because they are friends with me is, right. is like a thing. It's the best example of that. I think it's the one we see yeah. around more and I can forgive it like mm-hmm. once. Yes, exactly. But after a while, it gets to be a little bit too much. So anyway, without going in, this is not a, obviously clearly a Dresden Files podcast, although someday, hey, that may happen. Oh my God, um, don't add us. Don't say, oh, now we're doing it. <laughs> don't say shit like that. <laughs> All right. No, it's not going to happen. Um, but anyway, so then Jessica goes, of course, to see Trish and ask Trish, what would Trish do? <laughs> uh, and I'm I've, like, I've what? spoken my piece on this subject. I, right. I let the defense All right, rest. Fine. All right. We'll skip through that. No, but it's I just, just because yeah. I you're right. Asking Trish what Trish would do is a bad idea. Going to Trish and asking moral questions is a less bad idea, you know. Right. And in the abstract, not specifically what would Trish do if Trish was in that situation, because Trish has has some issues thinking clearly when she's personally involved. But um, but yeah, I mean, she goes and she gets that advice. And then I love so much what happens after that. Jessica's going through this thing and she's like, you know, maybe I just have to stay with him. Maybe I just have to be with him all the time. Maybe I just have to do all this stuff. And then she goes back in. She comes back with the Chinese food. She serves everybody up. She proves to Kilgrave that his food is not drugged, which mm-hmm. it is not. But of course, Laurent and Alva's <laughs> food is drugged. They pass out. She stabs him in the neck and she says, what would Jessica do? And I was like, God damn right. Yeah, this is good. <laughs> this is good stuff. I, I really like oh, it. it's fantastic. She's thinking, is this how I save the world from Kilgrave? You know, like maybe mm-hmm. this is how I do it. But then, yes. and now, now I am reading some very serious, hard-boiled detective stuff into this. But if if she's really thinking that, and I think she is, is this how I save the yeah. world from Kilgrave? She then has a moment where she says, "But it doesn't save hope." Yeah. And this is how I yeah. save hope, and maybe also save I the save rest hope. of the world from Kilgrave. You know. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I love that moment. I think it's fantastic. And then in the end, like as as I'm coming out of this episode, I'm just thinking, you know, is it about doing good or is it about power? Right. Because we're having this big discussion. There's this big discussion about power and how you use it and how you're responsible for it. And um, and, you know, when you use your powers for good and, and what happens when you use your powers for evil, you know, and, and Jessica being, you know, essentially the Jiminy Cricket, you know, for a wild psychopath, <laughs> like Kilgrave, you know. Um, and so for Jessica, who resents her power. And isn't really trying to be good, but can't really help herself. Yeah. Like, I think it's just about doing good. I think she just like knows what is right and what is not right and wants to do those things. Can't help herself from doing those things. Um, for Trish, I think it's about power. She chooses to do good. She wants to do good. But it's really about having that own sense of personal power. She does not want to be personally helpless. That makes her crazy. 
So for her, it's kind of almost this morally neutral space. And then for Kilgrave, it is clearly about power and doing whatever he wants, whether it be good or evil, I think is immaterial to him. Mostly he's going to choose evil because it has to be about him and what he wants. But he really loves that power because even when he's doing good, he still gets off on it. He's still excited about it. You know, this is going to be so great. Right. He's excited we'll in we'll a skeevy good. way. Yes, you know, absolutely. Yeah. Because it's not about doing good. It's about using his power, you know? Um, so I find that really interesting. I do think Trish is a little complicated in that space because I think I think what gets mixed into her otherwise pretty solid moral compass is mm-hmm. the idea that she can no longer be helpless, you know? Like, yes. it's not bad mm-hmm. for her not to want to be helpless. That makes sense. It's not bad for her right. to accumulate the kinds of power that can help other people and then to turn around and use it to help those people. But it's where those that X, Y axis kind of crosses that it becomes very right. muddy for her. Yeah. I mean, I think it puts her into a morally neutral space. I think that she would do good given the choice, but I'm not sure that that's her primary motivator the way that it is for Jessica. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I think it's, it probably is her primary motivator when it's not about her and Jessica. Right, right, right. Yes, yes. But mostly she wants to have power because she was powerless. Right, yeah. But even then, I'm going to say from a superhero perspective that that is not necessarily bad. You know, um, I mean, that's the essence of Batman. But I don't think it's necessarily good either. Yeah. You know, like I I no longer want anybody else to feel as powerless as I feel right now. And I will therefore dedicate my entire life to making sure that as many people as possible don't feel that way, you know. That's Batman. Right, right. So we can't we can't yeah, declare it entirely powerless. bad. <laughs> they re- they remain powerless though. I mean even if he's rescuing them, they don't have their own personal power. It's his power that he is using and choosing to give to them. And that's the thing like that that I think Trish what she's after isn't doing good. I think she's doing good as part of it, you know. Yeah. But what she's after is really about her own personal power. And I think that that is the kind of thing that is actually what's funny in a noir story, you know, when you get to the idea of yes. corruption. Like, that's the kind of power that is essentially corruptible, you know? Uh, yes, I will agree with you. That's that you've got it. Is first of all, the context of this as a noir story where literally any power at all either cost you something yeah. or will cost you something. Mm-hmm. is part of that that frame of where we're not really talking about a superhero story right now. We're talking about yeah. a noir story. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. also as a side note for anybody who wants to talk to me about Batman, that's also why I think Bruce Wayne making that vow as a child is mm-hmm. integral to the concept yeah. of Batman. That's an asterisk. I have other podcasts about it. Moving on. <laughs> Go to pulpdiction.biz. There's tons of superhero stuff. If you are into superhero stuff and you haven't been to pulpdiction.biz, then do it right now. You will not regret it. I swear. There's amazing stuff there. Joshua has done so much with this. Um, But back to Jessica Jones. There's just a couple more things that I kind of want to mention before we get to your analysis of the doors in Jessica Jones. (laughs) Absolutely. Which is becoming a a recurring um, segment here. Um, There were a couple things that just delighted me. Uh, When Jessica's phone rings and Kilgrave takes out the phone, he goes, it's Patsy. Right. <laughs> Just, <laughs> that was adorable. Um, I absolutely love Kilgrave being like, how do you people live like this day after day? Just hoping people are going to do what you want. It's unbearable. <laughs> we Yes. In that moment, he is all of us. And also we feel gross about it. You know, <laughs> it is. I know. 
I know. It is so fun. And then, of course, when Jessica says, you use your powers to compel murder. And he goes, tomato, tomato. <laughs> Pure super villainy right there. Yeah. I I love Kilgrave so much. He delights me He's a fantastic so villain. An absolute, and, He's so good. And I'll say, at the time that this show came out, I think that they were doing some metafictional things with his villainy. Yeah. Because you mm-hmm. had a bunch of ladies who fell in love with his doctor, you know, from mm-hmm, Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. And then they came here and they were like, oh, no, what the hell is this monster? This isn't my doctor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, since then, we've got him in a lot of other stuff. And some of it's very dark and some of it's lighter. Yeah. And it's a more nuanced thing now. But when this show came out, it was basically you knew him from his yeah. tenure as the doctor where he was like a beloved heroic figure, you know, yeah. overall. So mm. sweet and goofy. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, gosh, yeah, it's, 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 it's tough. I think if you are coming into it, wanting to love the character, yeah. but if you're coming into Jessica Jones content, just to love David Tennant, I think you'll be happy. Yes. 100%. <laughs> yes, I agree with that. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So take us through Jessica and her doors. Okay. Well, the easy part first, her war on doors mm-hmm. does continue. She wrecks two more yes. doors in this episode. <laughs> One of them's to save lives. I'm just saying this woman is a one woman wrecking crew of doors in New York City and its surrounding environs. (laughs) Now, as for her own door, this is actually Mm -hmm. kind of interesting and where the metaphor gets a little more conceptual, I think. Yeah. Because Mm -hmm. up till now, it has very much been centered on Jessica's own office slash apartment door. Yeah. But we've moved the story away from that location, right? So we can't really Mm -hmm. focus in on that door. Although we do have some moments. We have the fact that Kilgrave is on the inside of it now at the beginning. Yes. Um, Mm -hmm. And that he is the one who invites Ruben in and then sullies that space, you know? So that her door still matters. But as we move Mm -hmm. into her childhood home, I do think that it is very telling that her measurements of her growth as a human being are on a door jam. Yes. She makes such a big deal about her brother's room. This door stays closed. And then when it doesn't stay closed, that's how she knows something's up, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. And also she uses her own childhood room as a safe haven. And it's largely just the ability to close a door that makes it so. Right. She closes it, locks it, puts the uh, door or the chair up against it. Yeah. And also on the front of her door in her bedrooms, do not enter. Yes. So we've moved away from the door that is Jessica's that we have been most familiar with yeah. and kind of into a larger world of doors that matter to Jessica. But nevertheless, we are seeing a lot of stuff in her life reflected in these doors. That is so interesting. I love that analysis. I think it's great. And in a in a much broader sense, she actually starts out top shelf perverts trying to solve the Kilgrave problem with doors. And gates and fences. All Uh of these are just various Uh levels of liminal spaces. Like that ability to enter or exit Jessica's life Mm -hmm. and how much control she has over that or does not have over that has just been like taken out into the wider world. And I don't think for nothing that we see these two episodes showing Jessica the most wrong footed and then the most returning back to herself. Yeah. 
God, no, it's great. I love your whole door metaphor. I think this is fantastic. I love seeing that analysis. I am so <laughs> glad that you care. <laughs> I know, I think it's great. I love it. All right, so I don't know. Does your favorite part have to do with the door? It does not actually. <laughs> it does not, okay. <laughs> so longtime listeners of various and sundry chipperish and pulp diction podcasts will know that Lonnie and I don't have great feelings about flashbacks, generally. Mm -hmm. We don't have great feelings about conflict that could be solved with a conversation. Mm -hmm. So surface viewings of these two episodes could have you in a place where you were like, oh, oh, Josh and Lonnie are gonna think these are garbage. But- Right, <laughs> not at all. Not at all. So my favorite mm -hmm. part is how smoothly this entire story keeps moving along yeah. With the most in-character choices being made by and large, right? Like when Trish yes. nerfs Jessica, it's not manufactured conflict. Mm -hmm. They're not talking because Trish doesn't feel worthy to talk to Jessica right then. And Jessica keeps yeah. pursuing her because Jessica needs to say goodbye to her. You know, right. I, I, mm -hmm. Like that. And these flashbacks aren't just there to give us exposition a la Daredevil. Right. Here's who he is and how right. he came to be. They're there to give us even more emotional context to the choices that Jessica's making in the present. So, well, yeah. And she is living those moments. I mean, when we see the flashback, we're seeing all this happen in the house while she is physically there watching. Yes. You know, so yeah. the way it's presented, it really is very much in the now. You know, we have the moment um, in the end of the first episode where she's standing there looking at her house and she watches as, you know, Rebecca De Mornay takes the teenage version of Jessica into the car, you know, and takes her away. Um, so all of those things, I think, are done in a way that makes the flashback so much more personally, like, uh, like um, so much more temporally relevant, that it is actually what Jessica is living through in that moment, you know? Yeah. Um, so as far, like, flashbacks can be very weak devices, but can be done really, really well. And this is one of the two ways that it's done really well. The other way is when the, the thing that you're flashing back to actually has a narrative of its own that runs right, alongside right, yeah. the current narrative. But what we're doing is we're really getting an insight into that is a moment where Jessica is reliving those experiences. Why? While she's in her driveway, while she's in her foyer, you know? So um, absolutely, like, I think that all of that. And then we have the dream, you know, and again, dream sequences, I'm also not a big fan of. But in this particular moment, I mean, it is not one of these dream sequences in which we're trying to figure out what the balloon means. You know, right. I mean, like, it's all like, it's not, it's not this like false, you know, kind of um, sense of, of like artistry and look how deep and metaphorical we are. This is actually her lived experience in that moment. She is living and reliving these things that are haunting her and she's in the house where you know like these where she lived that life you know with these people who would die as far as she sees it because of her yeah you know so for her to be living that experience for her to be feeling this way like you are really getting a sense of her feeling so in this particular instance i think these flashbacks get a legit pass oh yeah I mean, that's that's why it's my favorite part. Like I am yeah. quietly folding these two episodes up, especially WWJD and putting mm -hmm. them in my back pocket for next time when I'm railing against false conflict and, because right. people won't talk and dream sequences mm -hmm. and flashbacks and people go, well, when yeah. was it done well? And I can go, 
right here, baby. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. No, I also I always have like a, a like a set few examples of these bad, you know, devices, these generally, you know, misbehaved devices, yes. <laughs> misused devices, um, where they're actually used really, really well, because they're, it's not that the device itself is bad. It's that the way we typically use it tends to be cheap writing. Yes. And this is a circumstance where that's not the case. So I guess my favorite part is I get to prove myself correct out in the world, but whatever. Yes. <laughs> I'll take it. What about your favorite part, Lonnie? Is it more, less, or the same amount of, you know, self-serving? Uh, uh, well, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. It's it's Kilgrave's declaration of love in the police precinct. Um, oh, yeah, I though. Absolutely. That scene is so dark and it maps like, you know, not in its specifics, but in, in the the sense of it and the way that it plays to like actual abusive relationships. It is so creepy, so effective, so well done. Uh, David Tennant is terrifying and delightful at the same time. Um, it is just amazing. And so like I'm in awe of it. I'm made horribly uncomfortable by it. Um, and, and this is the thing, like Jessica Jones is just, it makes you feel cognitively dissonant. It makes you feel emotionally dissonant. Everything within this story works against itself and yet so beautifully harmonizes. It is kind of masterful and I love it. I mean, I don't think I'm giving away anything when I say that this is the best of the Netflix MCU stuff that I've seen. Yeah. There's a few mm -hmm. things I haven't seen yet, but I honestly, it's not shade on them when I say I don't expect them to, to you know, to displace Jessica Jones yeah. season one. I just don't expect it. Yeah. If they do, great. But I can't go in That'd expecting be amazing, that because yeah. I will be disappointed. <laughs> exactly. No, this is so incredibly good and so incredibly powerful. And I absolutely love it. All right, if you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, come find us on Twitter. I am at Lonnie Diane Rich, and Joshua is at Joshua Unruh, and the hashtag is Listen Up, A-Holes. Both Chipperish Media and Pulp Diction Productions are entirely supported by listeners like you who draw our initials with a big heart around them on your Etch-A-Sketch. <laughs> Show your support by visiting our Patreon pages or by leaving a great review on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for more people to find us and join in the conversation. The links to Apple Podcasts and both our Patreon pages are easy to find right there in your show notes. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Listen Up A-Holes. We'll be back next time with our discussion of Jessica Jones Season 1, Episodes 9 and 10. Until then, Obi-Wan Kenobi. But cooler. Did I lose you? Oh, no, I'm here. Okay, I was just making sure. I didn't know if there was some reaction to Scott Lang. Except you've never seen Ant-Man, so probably not. I have not. seen Ant-Man. I've seen Ant-Man. I've seen Ant-Man and the Wasp. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I watched all the. All I watched him in the all the other Marvel movies. So yeah, I'm familiar with him. Sure, but He's I was just adorable. I was just I was just having a Paul Rudd moment. <laughs> right. Okay. I'm cutting all of this. Okay. No. Probably I'm not. Okay. So. <laughs>